Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Thank you, Matthew Arter. Welcome back. It's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. This week, Matthew and I welcome back Paul Padilla, frequent guest of the podcast, a member of the family. He's probably seen the Facts of Life episodes more than Matthew and I have combined. He is such a super fan. And you will recall that he had joined us for The Facts of Life Goes to Paris, So it seemed fitting to have him back for this, the second of the two TV movies produced during the time span of our beloved TV show. We watched what I am calling Season 8, Episode 17 and a Half, The Facts of Life Down Under, which had an original air date of February 15th of 1987. Now, before we start, I do want to let you know we are doing this as last time as a two-parter, but second part next week isn't just going to be us talking. We actually were able to get with Diana Eden, the costume designer, and I had the chance to talk to her and ask some questions about the production. So uh, that is in the future next week, something to look forward to. And uh, in the meantime, please to enjoy this week's show. Let's jump on in and let's face the facts. Down Under with Paul Padilla. Welcome back, Paul Padilla. Hello. All the way from Texas, a very busy man, as we discussed last time, now a theater producer, impresario, if you will. And here he is making time to deign to mix with us lowly folk and our little shit show about an awful movie. And so sad that, I mean, I was I was watching it last night and I just, so many memories came back because I was that weird kid. We've all discussed this. I watched this movie so much, like almost like a daily thing. Like when I was getting ready for school, I would just pop it in. You know? <gasps> wow. I watched it and like for like a year, I would watch it in the mornings before Catholic school. So it was not, it was very unhealthy to be honest, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but I was but watching it last night. I was just kind of like laughing, like, oh my gosh, I... Like, I basically know every line. Like, it's pretty sad. But, uh, I mean, I hadn't seen it in a, probably a couple of years. But, um, but yeah. So you were, at one time, a diehard fan of this movie. Yeah, it was like my romancing the stone with all the adventure and everything. <laughs> I was so excited as a, as a sixth grader, you know? I was I thought it was the coolest. This puts the meh in romancing the stone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the TV guide ad was a full page of the TV guide. So mm-hmm. I was able to cut it out and tape it to a VHS cover because I recorded it on the high speed. So the good quality, you know, when you use two hours for a tape instead of the six or whatever, the eight. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. So this was worth the, the, the high quality speed on VHS with the TV guide cover tapes on the cover of the Polaroid VHS, whatever it was. So yeah, it meant something to me at the time. Wow. <laughs> I remember watching it when it came out. I remember seeing it and I remember watching the movie and going, oh, this, this isn't working for me. This isn't very good. I'm not enjoying this. But I couldn't tell you specifically why. Now, did you watch this, Matthew, in its first original run? 
Oh yeah. <laughs> and what were your what was your initial uh, review of it at the time? Okay. When little negative five year old Matthew watched this in 1987. <laughs> okay. Thank you for asking. Um, I okay. It, I'm trying to think of what I can compare it to, like something that I told my parents, like. I'm like, you know, when a kid is like, I really want this. And then you give it to them knowing that they're not going to like it. And the kid kind of kind of forces their way through it just to prove a point. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was like, I want to rent Watership down. It's a cartoon about rabbits. And my mom was like, no, you don't want (laughs) to rent that. And then we rented it and then I watched it and in horror (laughs) and then realized what it was. And at the end of it was like, (laughs) so I would like to ask that we just um, as we make our way through this, could we not do any Australian accents, please? It will make me want to punch you in the face. I can't do it anyway. Neither can David, but I know it's going to kill dare you, you fucking try. How dare and you? I just don't want, I, I, it made me want to punch Tootie in the goddamn face. <laughs> because, and Paul, you will appreciate this as the Latino X or mm-hmm. whatever the fuck we're calling you people now. Yeah, I still don't know how to say it, but yes, thank you. But when you watch the news and they're like, oh, a feel good story. The taco truck came into town today and they served a helada. And then they served rifadin. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly they become fucking charo when they've got right. to say a Spanish word. Right. So I don't want to hear anybody calling me a Sheila. Anybody want to talk about calling me a mate or anything like that? I wanted to punch Judy in the pussy halfway <laughs> through this movie. Yeah. Are you? Are you on a walkabout? Shut up, Tootie. <laughs> well, the rules have now been set. And Matthew, uh, out of respect to you, I will refrain from doing an Australian accent. Well, I think there's going to be a slip up there, David. I don't know. I'll be impressed if you don't slip up. But I, yeah. I'm going to get my vodka ready. I'm going to turn it into a <laughs> drinking game. <laughs> I got nowhere to be. Yeah. So. Let's talk some nuts and bolts then before we uh, actually get into synopsizing and hacking our way through the thicket of this. Uh, this originally was broadcast on February 15th of 1987, the day after Cupid's Revenge was broadcast. Uh, so therefore this was a Sunday night movie event. This is a big fucking deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did not look up what else was on that night. Not gonna do it. Damn it. I was hope I was wondering when I looked it up on Wikipedia and said when it aired, I was like, all right, I'm gonna leave it for David to find out what else was on because I want to know what my other choices would have been. Well, I think Matthew definitely knows that, you know, it's it was a big deal. It was famously a joke on the Golden Girls, too, like that next year or that same year. You know, I think it was I don't even remember what the episode was. I just remember it was hilarious, you know, B. Arthur and her why are you, are you upset about that, Dorothy? And she's like, no, I'm upset because I didn't have it rerun the Facts of Life Goes to Australia. I know I was like, that's it, you made it. The Golden Girls, it's like a crossover event for me, a young gay child. (laughs) And by the way, when you pull this up on Crackle, Mm -hmm. uh, it does say the Facts of Life goes down under. Oh, right. Really, guys, really? Let's get get our titles correct. (laughs) Just watched it last night, you'd think I would remember that, but yeah. (laughs) 
So on February 15th of 1987, this was broadcast at 9 p.m. Earlier that night on ABC, we had The Wonderful World of Disney. On CBS, there were 60 Minutes and Murder, She Wrote. On NBC, we had Our House, Easy Street, and The Hogan Family. Opposite this, directly on the other networks, ABC was uh, part one of a miniseries called America with a K. <laughs> Wasn't that the, um, you know, the, the whole fucking Soviet panic of, oh my God, the Russians are going to bomb us and they're going to take over. Wasn't that about like, what if that happened? If It's around uh, that time when we were all worried about that again, you know, and yeah. here we are again. I'm just kidding. But anyway, it's yeah. true. Yeah, in 1997, it takes place 10 years in the future. Uh, so in 97, 10 years after the Soviet invasion of the US, an anti-war activist is released from a concentration camp and inspires a rebellion against the Soviet occupation and the American collaborators. Something tells me there were more laughs in that show than there were <laughs> in The Facts of Life Goes Down Under. Uh, <laughs> I and then our house. our house was a good show. I used to like that show as a kid with Wilfred Brimley and the wonderful. Yeah, it's a good show. And then opposite on the CBS, we had Designing Women. Uh, together we stand and then hard copy. Remember when hard copy was on? I always think of that as being like a syndicated show that used to be on network TV. Very strange. Uh, anyway, yeah. So I think, Matthew, you probably are hitting the nail on the head because the laughs are few and far between in this. And whom do we have to blame for that? Well, this movie was written by Gordon Kotler, C-O-T-L-E-R. I don't show that he wrote any episodes of The Facts of Life. It's just, he's a producer and writer for Sing Along with Mitch from 1961 to 1964. So he was a variety show man particularly attached to Mitch Miller and various variety shows and variety specials. Uh, he only has 21 credits between 1959 and 1996. He passed away in 2012 at age 89. Uh, he does not have a Wikipedia page in English, but if you look it up, he has one in French. The French version of Wikipedia lists him. And it's weird because- Maybe they thought he wrote the Paris movie. Um, <laughs> maybe. But he was a former journalist for The New Yorker from 48 to 54. He became a screenwriter and worked for television. Uh, he did radio adaptations and uh, was also basically a, a novelist as well as writing uh, serials for magazines. So TV and movies wasn't the only thing he did. He was definitely a writer. That's what he did and made his living at doing. But uh, this wasn't exclusively what he did. So interesting. We also have a new director, Stuart Margolin. What the fuck was John Boab doing? What? Uh, apparently he was afraid to fly or had a fear of kangaroos. I wonder if he was pissed. I wonder if he was like, really? You're going to bring in a new director for my show? Okay. Fuck all y'all bitches. Now, do you guys recognize the name Stuart Margolin? Nope. He is, number one, still alive. He is 82 years old, and he has credits recently as 2020. He is an actor as well as a writer, composer, and director. Uh, as an actor, he has 122 credits from 1961 through 2020. That's a 59-year career. Uh, directing, 
57 credits between 1973 and 2010. So his directing career has been concurrent with his acting career. Uh, he has directed Love American Style, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Phyllis, The Love Boat, uh, many one-off episodes and many multiple episodes of series. But most people will know him from his role as one of the supporting players on The Rockford Files, the character of Evelyn Angel Martin, for which he won two Primetime Emmys for Best Supporting Actor in 1979 and 1980. Impressive. I mean, and you look at a picture of him, you're like, oh my God, that guy. I've seen him in a million things. Can't name one of them. I didn't even know about it. I never watched The Rockford Files. That was a grown-up show when I was a kid. So uh, anyway, yeah. So Stuart Margolin and I'm going to uh, tease us a little bit here with, I was not mad at the directing of this. I, I thought there were some, some nice things going on here. Uh, now, to add the uh, yang to our yin, the music, composed by Fred Carlin, K-A-R-L-I-N. He is a composer who would go on to do many big movies, not huge like, you know, Titanic and, you know, Top Gun, but some high profile stuff, 157 credits over a 30 year career that lasted till 97. And uh, he passed away of cancer in 2004 at age 67. Yeah, not mad at the direction of this. The music, I have issues. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, we have just duplicated the entire soundtrack for you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> My first note is I already like the music better than Paris. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, see, Paris was unsubtle, but it just wasn't so dated. It wasn't so synthesizer-y. This, this sounded like somebody went to their friend who does music for porn sometimes and says, look, you've got a Casio that has 100 instruments on it, so you don't have to pay any, any musicians. We can just pay you to do all of it. Uh, can you crank this out for me in a, in a weekend? Yeah, and you know, and what, but one thing about the beginning sequence, though, is like, this is probably because of Diana, but when they're opening the drawers, some of those outfits they actually wore in on the series. You know what I mean? Like I recognize the 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 denim Tututi's denim dress, you know, and it was in the drawer when they were packing. So I was like, how's that for being consistent with you know costumes and stuff? Because most sitcoms they never wear the same thing twice, and you never see it again. You know that's why I liked Roseanne because Jackie always had that damn jacket for like two years. You know, <laughs> uh, so I just thought, hey, that's a good little detail that was. You know, nice wow. yeah. it so never even want... occurred to me to look at that stuff. I'll, I'll see if I can find out anything about that. I mean, it was only 35 years ago. I'm sure she remembers everything. <laughs> Did so... you also like the detail of all their passport photos having their publicity <laughs> shots on it? The headshots, basically. Like this. I mean, Andy's like this with his hand under under his chin. And I mean, like, I mean, I would love mine to look like that, but it's more like triple chin Paul, you know. <laughs> After oh, a night of drinking, but whatever. My God, that that opening sequence was just so. It was like the classic 
B movie. Okay, we're not going to show them packing. We're just going to show this close up pan across suitcases and things being packed and show uh, the the passports and stuff. It was it was really cheese tastic, and I, I I did giggle at it. I'm not sure if I loved it or hated it, but it was amusing to me. And then it does turn into the Soren ride at Epcot after that because it's like these big grand airplane shots of Australia. So I was like, oh, it's like you know, then that to epic. And I will say, to credit the musician, the music of Mr. Fred Carlin, uh, when we get into the more naturistic, outback, uh, you know, outdoorsy montages and sequences, it does smooth over a bit. It sounds a little less synthesizer-y and a little less cheesy pop, and it has a little bit grander sweep to it. And uh, I, those were moments I was like, okay, it's not that bad here. But then Blair and Joe, run and go into a chase scene with these two goons chasing them and we get everything that paul and i just did plus a awful awful drum machine sound we we literally called them drum machines because it's clear it weren't drums that we were hearing back in the 80s they were machines uh barely competently duplicating the sounds of drums so this movie exists because in the 80s, we had this Australian, uh, we had this obsession in our American culture with Australia. I think it must have all started with Olivia Newton-John in the late 70s with her pop career and her being in Greece, which was such a monster hit. But we had music groups like uh, Men at Work. I come from a land down under. Yes, you do. Uh, in Excess, ACDC, Olivia Newton-John's Let's Get Physical, her koala blue clothing line, uh, The Thornbirds, the novel in the miniseries was huge in 1983. Crocodile Dundee was 1986. After this, in 1988, Meryl Streep in A Cry in the Dark. Famous line from A Cry in the Dark, Matthew? I have no idea. I know it. Can you do it without an Australian accent? Oh, That's no, the challenge. Okay, well, I can, but it's just not going to be right, but I'm not going to do it with an Australian accent, okay? Mm -hmm. That dingo got my baby. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. That doesn't sound right. Yep. Oh, you got to say it with the accent, but I'm not going to. Look, yeah. I'm turning red. I'm about to explode. <laughs> Read. Yep. And then I think our uh, obsession with Australian culture probably culminated and then began to decline in 1988 with the establishment of the Outback Steakhouse here in Tampa, Florida. Okay, boys, I am not going to ask Paul, our guest, nor Matthew, my co-host, to do a synopsis of the show. And I'm also not going to do a line-by-line -line analysis. I looked on Wikipedia and they have a very good synopsis that captures most everything so I've just made a few tweaks to it, and I am now going to read the synopsis, and then we can get it out of the goddamn way, and then we can just talk freestyle, and I will not feel beholden to following scene by scene, line by line, shot by shot. This is a tactic to fool myself into not doing the thing that I don't want to do that I still end up always fucking doing. <laughs> <clears throat> the Facts of Life, Down Under. Beverly Ann, Blair, Joe, Natalie, Tootie, and Andy fly together to Sydney, Australia to meet up with Miss Carstairs, 
and the female students of the Kulunga School, their sister school establishment where they will participate in a cultural exchange program. Blair and Joe get involved with Jewel Thieves and are pursued by two men named Kevin and Nick, both of whom claim to be the police, who accuse Joe and Blair to be the criminals. Joe and Blair place a jewel that has been put in their bag into Natalie's bag. Natalie is off exploring with Tootie. Speaking of Natalie and Tootie, while exploring the great outback, they split up. Natalie befriends a cattle rancher named Wren, and when their truck breaks down, they're forced to camp in the outback, with Natalie unsure that she'll make it back to Sydney in time for the school assembly at which she is to give a speech. Tootie, on the other hand, while viewing ancient caves, makes the acquaintance of a handsome American anthropologist named David, who shows her some of the natural sights of the Australian outback under the pretense of letting her think he is a native Aboriginal person. Meanwhile, yes, there's more people. We're not done yet. Andy, who is interested in one of the students at the school named Jane, convinces Beverly Ann to take him to a sheep ranch owned by an old boyfriend of hers named Roger. During the stay at the ranch, Roger and Beverly Ann slowly begin to rekindle their old romance as Roger shows Andy the ropes of sheep farming. Blair and Joe manage to escape the jewel thieves and arrive at their Australian sister school where they hope to find Natalie with the jewel. Natalie has arrived just in time thanks to Wren's father rescuing them from the outback in a helicopter. Turns out that Wren tossed the seemingly worthless stone out of a helicopter and the thieves are arrested. The girls are all surprised to hear about one another's adventures and Beverly Ann explains that she is not staying with Roger even though he has asked her to because she wants to remain with her new family. And over the credits, we see two Aboriginal children finding the valuable opal stone that originally had been with Blair and Joe and then with Natalie. It's just out in the middle of the wild. They take it, pick it up, and take it home to do God knows what with it. The end. Good night, everybody. See you later. We're done. We're great. done. This is great. Great talking with you guys. I mean, Ins insert stock footage by the ton and there you have the facts of life <laughs> man there are so many wtf moments in this and are we are we ready to get into them are we ready to just dive on in boys mm -hmm. i well i will say right off the bat david i took issue with the directing and i don't know now if it's the directing or the editing but there's just so much pacing problems with it it was almost like I felt like they'd only filmed it with one camera. So they would film like the wide shot. And then to get a reaction shot, they had to spend three hours relighting the set and getting it to. Oh, and here's a close up of Andy going, oh, ah. And it was like, oh, Jesus, just it, 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 it. there was pacing issues with some of the shots I didn't need in the first 20 minutes. 30 or first 20 minutes, 18 of those minutes being sexy looks from that 13 year old girl at Andy. Oh, I have that. I put that in my notes that she's like, she wants Andy. I feel like Andy's still a virgin and this girl is like, wants to take his virginity. It's uh, she, so creepy. She's her, terrible and charm free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> her eyes are spooky. The way she's looking at him. 
It's like she wants and to there's sell no it. real payoff for the story. That's the thing. They end up sitting next to each other at the assembly at the end of the movie. And basically, Andy, who has experienced this whole sheep farming thing, was kind of like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to do it. I have a few more things. But uh, if I ever come back and sheep farm, I'll look you up, babe. Kind of a wrap up to the story. It's like you couldn't have given him his first kiss. You couldn't have given them a chaste kiss or even ever kiss him on the cheek. That would have been at least something, some type of a takeaway for him, but he really didn't get it. From the person who complains about sexualizing teenagers. No, I didn't want to see them kiss. No, thank you. I'm good. A, a simple chaste kiss on the cheek would have been lovely. That is appropriate. Versus Andy taking Cupid last week over to the girls' gym and saying, I was hoping I'd get lucky. Well, Very different, Matthew. He's, the fact that he said to her, at 13 years old, well, if I decide on sheep herding, I'm gonna need somebody to choose that life with me. <laughs> really? Is that your Andy impression? No, it was the way he said that line. Yes, um, last night at 1.45 a.m. I felt the same thing, Matthew. I'm so glad you said that. Wow, that was okay. priceless. It was awesome. And that was not in, a, in, a, in an accent. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. But let's uh, let's sort of backtrack here, because um, I I think the pacing problems are just how lousy the script is. Yeah, maybe the editor could have tightened it up. And Matthew, I don't doubt for one second that this was a single camera shoot. This isn't like the the facts of life on the stage. I'm very sure they did set up reaction shot coverage and stuff like that. But that does require some better editing and uh I would be more inclined to blame the editor. What I liked about the direction was there were times the shots were quite um, languid and smooth. When Tootie is on the raft with David, played by Mario Van Peebles, by the way, before he got famous, uh, the camera is actually on another raft and you see them far away and they float and it's it's kind of a, lovely smooth choreographed dance between the the camera and that there's a scene that's cut from the reruns if you watch the four little chapters of it uh that are in syndication there's a scene missing where beverly ann and roger are out somewhere in front of the house lighting the lanterns in a sort of romantic talking about the past and the camera is a handheld camera and it's just following them and and smoothly passing through and would loop around them and the other side it was it was really quite nice i think the camera work and maybe that's owed to the the, the director of photography and or the cameraman maybe that's nothing to do with uh, mr margolis's contributions but uh, i did like that this wasn't always filmed like a sitcom that happens to be on film and in another country and i felt that a lot during paris all right so well, I know that with the pacing of this one, watching it last night, I realized as a sixth grader, I definitely fast forwarded all of the Beverly Ann romance stuff. I mean, I saw it for the first time, but I was watching it last night for like for the first time, even though I've seen this movie 200 times as a kid, I definitely fast forwarded through that because I was like, oh, I don't remember that at all. And I was getting bored last night, too. So, you know, it's like I don't need to see that because, you know, but yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm technically I'm agreeing with you, Matthew. What I'm saying is 
the the things I liked about the direction are different things that you disliked. But we all will agree, pacing one hundred percent. This could have moved along better, and I I'm not sure if we went and tried to do another cut of this movie, it would be that much improved. Other than it would be the same but shorter. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that there's any improvements to the material of the content. So no. we have weak content and pacing problems. It's a double whammy of unenjoyment, really. But like, I didn't need 20 minutes of them lugging their luggage around Australia when they land. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like, it's like, why can't that bus take them to their front door? Like they had to get on a bus and then they had, we have to see stock footage and then they get there. And they remember when luggage didn't have wheels on it. I know. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It was, that was the time. I remember I was doing some traveling at this time. And I remember having to lug a big ass suitcase or, or having the big suitcase with the teeny tiny wheels. So when you pulled it on its leash, it would just fall over. Like it was like, why do I even fucking have this? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, they're on a bus again. We they did it in the Paris too. You know what I mean? They were on the bus. I mean, yeah. But the oh, we have to, we have to, we can't miss the ferry. Have to run. You know, Beverly Ann, you flaky McFlakes a lot. You've got a lot of luggage, and you're dropping things, and we have to stop and help you pick them up. And whoa, this is comedy, right? I would have yeah. missed that. I'm like, I'll take the next one. You know, I don't, I don't run anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all over 40. We don't run. I don't run anywhere. anywhere. I love it. Yeah. There'll be another boat or I'll fucking hire one. I, <laughs> I'll just, I'll sleep on the dock. If Natalie can sleep in the outback with a camel licking her toes, I can sleep on a fucking dock till the morning ferry comes. Yes. While we're on the subject of this, the idea of, uh, we need to make this informational. This has to be infotainment. It's like, well, there it is, the world's biggest monolith right over there. Wow, it's amazingly hard to believe that it was established in 482 BC and over 100,000 people were here back at the Battle of whatever did it. It's like, oh, really, guys? Really? Needed to, to get all that stuff in? Um, yeah, when the camel appears, Natalie's like, why am I seeing camels? Whoa. Yeah, people from Afghanistan brought them over before we had railroads and let them go wild. Yeah. Th thank I'd you. Let Ren, I'd let Ren tell me whatever he wanted. I would just, I just think he's the cutest of all. He was. Yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah. When Natalie gets excited about seeing a kangaroo and he's like, oh, okay. And she's like, you don't think that's exciting? He's like, uh, yeah, it's about as exciting in your country as seeing a squirrel. Yeah, <laughs> because they are kind of a nuisance. That's how, that's how we are here in Texas in the front yard. You know, people come to visit from Orlando or whatever, and they freak out because there's like eight deer every morning on the front yard. And I'm like, I mean, we're like, yeah, they're there. I mean, they're nice. They're, that one's giving birth. You see right now. It's just, and some people wow. don't like them because they eat their bushes. I mean, they're, you know, rose bushes and stuff. So it's like, you know, <laughs> so it's like, for Texans, it's more of a nuisance. <laughs> Thank you so, for clarifying that. What would be fun the next time one is, um, surprised to see the deer in your yard you say deer were brought to texas in 1927 <laughs> by by some asshole from oklahoma <laughs> yes i'll try to say but, it as nice as ren did and i'm sorry do it in an australian accent please we can't now we challenge accepted but please do it in an australian accent ren is the only one that um is not a complete and utter red flag creeper yeah. of all four of the guys that they meet. Yeah. 
because I wrote down, because at this point in the film, in my notes anyway, we are, the girls are on the boat and instantly meet a random stranger. And and it's that inspector guy who's not an inspector, I guess. Kevin, we we call him Kevin. Yeah. Spoiler alert. And I'm sorry, I wrote down, you girls deserve everything that happens to you. Yeah. This whole trip. 15 seconds in, here's my address. It's like, what the fuck? Exactly. 15 seconds in, how can we help? Shut the fuck up, Joe. Yeah. We we are not helping. We are riding this ferry to our destination. We are not getting involved in a jewel heist. <laughs> and Joe, of all people, Joe's usually the one saying, ah, no. no, get that out of the backpack or I will kick you in the fucking nuts. Yeah. Like yeah. Joe is, a, and then later the whole thing of, oh my God, well, what are we going to do? And Joe's like, well, we can't, we, we're going to have to lie. We can't tell the police. They're going to think we're an accomplice. Uh, no, they're going to think you're Lucy and fucking Ethel. What, who does that? It's like, go to the cops. I, I have done several times. You use that nickel to call Natalie, call a uniformed <laughs> police officer. <laughs> How many times? How many opportunities? Yeah, the guys are hanging on them. So, yeah, Kevin the crook uh, presents himself as a police officer. Then this other guy, Nick, shows up, also presenting himself as a police officer, a police officer who picks the lock of their house after Joe tells him where they live also. Which I thought was really strange. I put in one of my notes, like, why is he doing it in the morning? When they're obviously going to be home, like do it at night when they're asleep or do it. And breaking in, picking the lock and breaking in. It's like, what the shit? Let me, let me, they should be getting up for breakfast. Let me break into the house. But yeah. But the whole thing of, well, we don't know which of the, one of these guys is a cop and one of these guys is a crook, or maybe they're both crooks or maybe they're both whatever. How preposterous this story. And this gets most of the screen time, this story of Blair and Joe being followed by these uh, stalker creeper dudes when they could just, it, when they were in public and saying, okay, we're leaving now. Oh, we're going to come with you. You're uh, That's where you just stand there and scream at the Let top of your lungs until someone comes to help you and say, keep these guys away from us and find us someone in the authority. I don't give a shit if you think I'm a jewel thief. I can't, <laughs> it's like, goddamn believable. And then the, uh, the the concept that one of them is one of them is a thief, and the, and by the way, no surprise, Kevin is really the sleazy one, and who we're pretty sure is the jewel thief, and Nick we're pretty sure is the cop, and oh, big surprise twist ending, Kevin's the jewel thief and Nick's the cop. Yeah, no twist at all. It's exactly as it seemed and it appeared, and then nothing that they do makes any sense because if it's like I'm a jewel thief, why am I hanging around with these two women? who don't have the jewel, that's because they put it in Natalie's bag, but I'm going to hang around with this cop who could fucking arrest me at any moment? I did, what? And my thought was, better to be arrested and proven completely innocent, Because so why not? Arrest me. Fine. Whichever maybe, one of you is the cop, arrest me. Yeah, exactly. And maybe because we're from Central Florida. If they don't think that there is a lot of traction in well, we're tourists. We don't know. We thought people in your country just come up and put things in people. And nah, I'm just stupid. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, honestly, tourist brain, all three of us can attest, is a real thing where people on vacation do the stupidest things that belie the intelligence they have in their normal habitat and day-to-day living. 
Anyway, so I, I think I've gone off completely uh, on on that whole scenario, that whole plot line and storyline that Blair and Joe get themselves into. Well, uh, when when he you talked about him breaking the cop breaking into their house, when he walks into their booby trap, that is when I had to hand myself over, David, to the whimsy that I was about <laughs> to experience. As Joe lays him down and goes, I'm not getting a pulse. What, really? And, and, and their reaction wasn't appropriate to, I've killed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, Blair, I've just killed a man. Mm. She's, like, she's like, I'm not getting a pulse. Yeah. <laughs> and Blair goes, let me get a mirror. Right. Because a mirror, you can hold it under the get the goddamn mirror. I just, <laughs> I just killed a person. Jesus Christ, Blair. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, your suitcase is gonna fucking kill a dude. Yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. Okay. Put him out like they put him out dead to not be able to wake up. I mean, the suitcase wasn't gonna do that. But also, Matthew, what's what that was hilarious was how quickly she she checks with the mirror. Like she didn't even give him a chance to take a breath. You know, it was literally like. <laughs> He's fine. Yeah. You know, and I was like, wait, did you do what? You know, I mean, it was, didn't even have the reaction time to let him take one breath, but whatever. Oh my goodness. Uh, let's take a step back, why don't we? And look at the big picture and ask ourselves the question. <laughs> why are we going backwards? We can't go backwards. No, no, but we have to because we uh, there's so much to talk about, but I can't not discuss why in the fuck are they there to begin with? What is happening? Can one of you explain it to me? Can you make any sense of that? Help. Why the girls are in Australia? Yeah. Yeah, I noticed we didn't find out until very much later that Natalie's there to make a speech. But it, it's not but it's not just so Natalie is there to make a speech. There's got to be more than that because at the beginning uh, when for, she, for the centennial of their sister school, the the Columbos or the Columba, the Kungaloosh, Kungaloosh, ah, Kulunga, K O O L U N G A, Kulunga. Oh, the Kulunga centennial. I didn't get that. And yeah. where the hell was Pippa? Didn't she go to that school? You shut your filthy whore mouth. We don't have to say her. We, we don't have to say the name that shall not be named. I know how you feel about her, Matthew. I'm sorry. You get Pippa's name out of your fucking mouth. <laughs> it's Franny Newcomb. All right. Okay. Done. <laughs> oh, by the way, Ken Reed cannot wait for the Pippa episodes. He is chomping at the bit to do some Pippas. So they're going to be fun. Uh but the, the thing is, okay, so it's all right. So 100th anniversary, clearly I missed something. And so we're we're having someone from a sister school give a speech. Gee, who would we do? Maybe the, the valedictorian of the most recent graduating class? Maybe an existing student? Oh, no, 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 no. Let's invite four women, none of whom attend Eastland anymore. Yeah. They're alums. None of them attend Eastland, and let's bring along their house mother and their 13-year-old horny friend. An honor student, I wrote down in my thing, when she's inviting Natalie onto the stage and she's not there, and we get, Natalie Green, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. Natalie Green, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. No, she's not coming. Natalie Green, 
Jesus. He, okay, we get it. But why not say an honor student from 1984? Never mind the fact that we've got the fucking valedictorian from 1983 sitting right here. True. So true. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Natalie is the one making the speech for some bizarre reason. And yeah, it's the whole thing of when you introduce somebody, you might look over to their chair to see if they're um, there. And, and if you don't and you announce them, well, then you would look after you say their name once before you say their name the second time and the third time. And we, we're literally in a Bueller, Bueller, Bueller situation where it's like, lady, shut up, ask, look at, is there something wrong? How is your friend? What's happening now? Yeah. It's like, oh no, we must maintain the, the rundown of this event. This has to be, she is supposed to be on now. I cannot adjust to any curveballs. Yeah, this headmistress of this girl's school has no idea how to talk. <laughs> I mean, really? Wow. So I just, we have to point that out that there is not one singular goddamn reason for them to be there. And then stepping, you know, into this, digging a little deeper here, the question is, uh, how are they all affording it? And number two, how are they all affording it when they clearly have to shut down the retail store that they all own as joint partners? Because ain't nobody to run that. Mr. Lazzaroni, I think, is dead by now. Okay. Ain't nobody to run over our heads. George is off with cinnamon. Uh, what in the actual fuck? Why would Beverly Ann and Andy justified by saying his uncle is paying for the trip because his uncle was a sheep farmer and thought he might enjoy learning about sheep farming in Australia. We got sheep in this country too, bucko. Don't need to buy an international flight for your nephew. And I just love that, he, that we went ahead and just added ad additional children. I mean, I mean, family to Andy, because, you know, we have his uncle and then we have his parents and then we have his grandmother. And then all of a sudden he, he's an orphan. He has no time. No yeah, in two weeks, he's going to be an orphan. We lose yeah. his parents who are divorcing. Yeah. No talk of his grandmother, no talk of his sister who has yeah. been mentioned before, and no talk of this rich yeah. uncle who can afford to send him to Australia. He's just been tossed aside. I, I mean that. Natalie does say, what, what do you mean we're stuck here? I have to get back and make a speech tomorrow. The people, uh, the people I came here to see and who are paying for my trip are expecting a speech. So at least Natalie acknowledges someone else is at least footing the bill for her trip. Yeah. Because Natalie, who was supposed to travel and never got around to it. Um, and, and why these four particular girls that I'm assuming Eastland wouldn't say, you know who we need to send, those four wacky girls who used to live over the cafeteria. You remember them? Yeah, the felons that were on probation for most of their time here. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, they all moved out. We'll find them. We'll send them. They're the, per yeah. Why all, <laughs> why all four of these girls? Why not? Where was fucking Nancy? Where, where was Molly? Molly was a movie star at this point. They could have sent her. Oh my God. So that, you know, you know, for me, I need, I need everything to be rooted in some form of plausible reality or if there is none, then establish it and stick to it. But this clearly is something that needed some plausible reality that was not there. So in the first minutes, when by the time they're on the bus, I was already like, I'm out. I don't know what the fuck is happening and why we're here. I am out. <laughs> so, 
all right. I needed to get that off of my chest. Glad you talked it out. Yeah, thank you. And there you have it. That is a good stopping point. We will pick up from this point next week, and you will have to live with the cliffhanger as to whether or not I slip up and actually do an Australian accent. I'm leaving you with a little bit of a cliffhanger and, of course, the coming attraction of our conversation with Diana Eden to hear some stories from behind the scenes. Until then, thank you so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.